All right, I'll do an opening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Am I doing an opening or have we already started? I, I don't I don't even know if an opening's required. But, um, uh, yeah, Look, it's Let's risking failure, opening. everyone. You know, you know the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> on the other side of the world. I'm, on, I'm in Australia and we're hanging out and chatting. We did record last week. It was such a boring conversation. I was bored of what Mick was saying. Mick was bored of what I was saying. <laughs> so we decided to not release it. And now we're here. Uh, how are you, mate? I'm, I'm surprised. I'm absolutely accelerating my move back home to Australia at this point, mate, I think. Oh, because we're recording uh, just two days after the Donald Trump situation. Uh, and um, it was funny, off there, guys. I said, hey, Mick, what time is it there? And he says, oh, it's, it's just before 10 p.m. I said, oh, that's quite early. He said, yeah, because we went back two hours. I said, and, I said and you- we turned the clocks back, yeah. That's right, we turned the clocks back two hours. And I said, yeah, and your progress. And because uh, it's definitely... Oh, mate, I don't know if we should talk about the Trump thing. I think people will just be over it. And this will be released a bit later than that. But um, so you're coming home next week then? I am, though, funnily enough. <laughs> well, not quite next week, end of the month. Um, sorry, I don't know if you can hear me chewing, but a little bit yeah, rude, pretty, but yeah, I'm over it. <laughs> Anything goes now. Fuck it. <laughs> Because of, the, because of the Trump thing, mate. Come on, where's your backbone? <laughs> You're in the land of opportunity. Well, yeah, and on top of that, I, I've been reading this audio book on my way down to New York this week. And it's excellent, by the way. Best book I've read in a while. And you're going to love this. I think you'd love the book, too. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. <laughs> and Who wrote that? Is that that Sam Harrison or something? No, no, no. A guy named Mark Manson. And, Mark um, Manson. Yep. Yeah, and a counterintuitive. Oh, hang on. No, I follow his. I follow his uh, blog actually. He, really, he, good he writes read. really good stuff. Oh my god, it's brilliant. And I heard him in an interview with um, Jonathan Fields on the Good Life Project a few weeks back while I was mowing the lawns and raking my fucking leaves. <laughs> 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 oh, old listeners will know what they're referring to. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, but it's a, I, I really enjoy listening to the interview because there's just a few little takeaways that. So anyway, the, the point of the conversation was just most of what Jonathan Fields was really interviewing him on was how this guy uses really extreme language to get his point across, and um, and you hear that a little bit in that. Anthony Robbins special too, like he swears a hell of a lot and it, it, you can see that he's very selective about how he does it, but he does it a ton as like a pattern interruption. And uh, I, I must admit, I was like, uh, nah, I think, I think I would glaze over that. Like I hadn't read any of his stuff, but I was like, I, I just don't know that I would buy that. And I found myself really engaged in the book because just the use of Profanity was in such a way that it, it just brought everything down to a level. And I realized after like a third of the book, I was like, oh, my God, this guy's like divulging Buddhist teachings. <clears throat> and I hadn't even realized he's been doing this the whole time. <laughs> mm, because so, when you swear, like people tend, it's, tend to trust people that swear. And 
I swear on stage all the time. I don't mean to. I cringe afterwards, but I just get so passionate. I'm like, if there's another word, then tell me. And like, it's not a, I don't, I would, when I say swear on all the time, I'm like, I'll swear once in a, in a presentation. When I say all the time, I mean, I do a lot of presentations. So it comes up a bit, you know, you're like, well, it's, but it's not to, not for shock value or anything. It's just often just raw passion saying like, I don't know another word or there's no other expression that just is to do this. So it's not so much a pattern interrupt. It's, but it's definitely not a, you know, it's not like you're at the pub where every second word is. Oh, yeah, dropping it's, the F-bomb. It's, you know, it's yeah, different. Yeah. But, right. but um, an extra fact, I must have been ahead of my time, mate, because the very first pop <laughs> release of Rise Above has got the F-word in the book. And I know people that didn't buy it because it had the F-word. Because I basically used to say, um, I used to say some people have got the fuck you face. And that's the face that just tells the whole world to go away. And, and that's what it's called. But that was, I wrote that book, what, nearly 20 years ago or something. And- it didn't help my branding and marketing at all, but I was like, "That's what's ha- that was what it was." So uh, I was just ahead of my time. I've also got a program um, that I run for corporates called "How to Get Your Staff to Give a Shit," and the tr- I have not found any other way to language that um, because that's what you're looking for, right? You you just want your staff to give a shit. Now this. You, if you if you actually got legitimate responsibility, that's what you want. If you if you don't have real responsibility, if you don't feel responsibility, you, you're offended by it. it's all outrageous. But someone who actually has responsibility says that's what I desperately need from my staff. Hmm. Well, I um I did find the book that I've been reading right now kind of timely because look, I don't want to talk politics either, but it's a bit hard not to right now. Other than just like. It, I've found it, it, especially just living here in the U.S., like really, uh, I don't know if the word's confronting. Just, just I've found myself constantly looking within my own feelings on the whole situation, not Trump, just the whole election and, and just how bloody drawn out it is here. And just like... Stuff I might see on social media, stuff I see on just general media, things I hear people talking about, and really trying to pay attention to what disturbs me and what gets me agitated. And there was stuff that would be getting my blood boiling. And I've been really trying, there's been at least 15 times. I'm not active on Facebook, but where I've been like, oh, I'd really just write, like to write a post and say what I really think. But I was like, I just, I don't want that response in my life. Like, I don't want all of that shit. And I don't want to buy into it. I don't want to be part of it. But it's pissing me off at the same time. And I still don't know what I would write, right? Um, I just don't. But I've analyzed it to death within my own mind it was like what is it that's so disturbing and on the one hand i think leading up to the election it was something about tolerance and just people's in a just i don't know there's this observations there's people in in my own circle that i just think less of and i'm wondering whether i do think less of them now or am i being small and judgmental and so now i'm like trying trying now now that the transition now i'm actually trying to like look at the world in with with their goggles on and go well what what was it that they were really 
passionate about because ne- until now it's helpful because I'm going, okay, well, now I'm seeing that they might not have been racist or sexist or, you know, and they're not. I know them not to be that way, but they were supporting a movement that appeared that way. I was like, okay. So obviously I drank the Kool-Aid a little along the way because I was obviously leaning left, right? Because I, I could go either way on some issues. Um, and it, it's been disturbing to kind of like just figure like view everything that's going on, but also not know what actually is getting me worked up. And I, I felt like this book I was reading at the moment was rather timely because it's just a reminder of some stuff that was really just taking ownership over your own feelings and, and respond like people with the whole Trump thing, for an example, there's just, there's so much blame and so much, um, this is why it happened. This is why it didn't happen. This is what's going to happen. This is why I'm unhappy. I'm pissed off. I'm sad. I'm this, I'm this, I'm that. And that was a, for me, like really realizing, like if I buy into that, I'm letting all of that control me and how I feel and my view of the world. And that just sounds shit. So, um, after I chatted with you last night, we talked a little bit and you, you said something about like, yeah, I felt rather sort of like, uh, I don't know what the word you used, but you felt, yeah, by his acceptance speech and that he didn't I'll let you, I don't know how, what, what, I didn't even watch it yet. I, you said it was good. and hmm. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't gloat. He had the opportunity to say, we stuck it up and we showed them and he had the opportunity to say, uh, 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 just aggressive things, but he was very. Um, people can question sincerity, right? But, but nonetheless, whether it was sincere or not sincere, because you can ask that of Hillary as well, of anybody. But he, he's, he, in his speech, which I recorded actually, he said, um, he said, you know, those people have been sort of in conflict with. Um, I'm putting my hand out to ask for your guidance and and help as we do this, and. Uh, he he was very respectful of people who know a lot and said, I need you. We need you. The country needs us all together. And it wasn't just once. As a matter of fact, um, and I want you to continue with your point, but just to so people know what I said yesterday, when the Twin Towers fell, I was there. And when I, I was in a little, I don't know if it was a bar or a cafe or something late at night, I couldn't get home because the trains were all stuffed and everything. And, and um, I was sitting in this bar with everybody all watching television and President Bush came out and – I'd come from Interlochen, which is a really warm, loving, multicultural community, which is trying to build a better planet. And I was, I naively thought that George Bush would come out and say, look, we, we've, uh, this is not conflict we're looking for. You know, this is like where we feel attacked, we feel threatened or, or, and some sort of warmth and some sort of like, um, I I mean, I I know the whole world probably watched that speech, but I know exactly where I was when I watched. I think it's the exact same piece of footage that I'm thinking of too. Just go on. Instead, he said, "Instead, he said, you know, we'll hunt you in in your harbors and all this kind of stuff." And I was like, "Yeah, I was like, are you helpful? You just escalated the thing." Like, yeah, that was that was the moment when that happened. When I, I remember sitting on my couch in Florida watching that. And that was far more defining than the moment of tr- the, the, twin, the plane hitting the towers because I was like, oh, my God, we are fucked. <laughs> yeah. 
this is this is not going to progress well at all. And I that was the only time in my life I had felt like I'm not in a safe place. Like I need to get out of here. I don't know what, and I'm sure everybody felt like that for a little while. Where in, were you? In you were in the states then, weren't you? You were in yeah. Florida, were you? Yeah, yeah, I was in Florida. So I was at university. Um, and I think uh, there's lots of conspiracy theories about what was going on there and what the agenda is and all the things at play and and somewhere in the middle is probably the truth. But um, but when when Trump was speaking the other day, I was quite scared when he was getting in i'm not in as much anymore of course time will tell and i'm not looking for an argument listeners but you know i'm just telling you what what my journey was that originally i was a fan of trump when he was a business leader and then as i started to learn more about him as a politician i was really uncomfortable with many things but there's other things i was like well actually that makes a lot of bloody sense but it was you know do you it's a question of, well can i take the good with the bad from this person etc um but so i got to the point where i was really Nervous. The day before, I absolutely called it. I was hanging out with Brad and we were working in the think tank, just doing a whole lot of business strategy stuff. And he said, do you think Trump will win? I said, oh, 100%. And even every poll said otherwise, but I was couldn't believe how naive the pollers were. I couldn't believe how naive the news was, how ignorant they were to the having been in America as an observer. I, I didn't... I moved outside of social circles. I just moved instead of just hanging out with the same sort of people. I was all around the country and you would just meet people who thought a different way. You know, you could feel the, for years you've been able to feel the swell. And so I'd said to Brad, oh, 100% he'll get in. And then as it all happened and the world was shocked, when that speech came out, I got nervous. But then I actually got quite emotional when he started talking. I actually felt myself almost desperate for that speech from however many years ago it was, 15 years ago or something and and when he started to build bridges. Now, I wasn't comfortable with, you know, he's got an identity that's very, um, oh, I don't know, it's pretty odd, isn't it? It's very Trump. But, but I felt a legitimate statesman-like agenda of, like, we put the war aside now, the battle aside, and we get on with it. And so that was very – so that's when <clears throat> I said to you, you know, um, you know, I felt heartened at the end of that, that – this, he wasn't just going to go because he could have just given permission for the public to go berserk like a like a like an anarchy, as in you know. So, which I hope doesn't still doesn't happen. But then, yeah, you were saying so. You got off the phone last night and you just started to what think that through a bit. <clears throat> yeah, well, I um, thought it through. Well, I didn't see the footage, but I did read something about like. Donald Trump's first hundred days in presidency, what it's going to look like, and it was a Facebook thing um, that somebody had posted, and I felt like they posted it in a uh, like negative way, like "Oh, here we go, like brace yourself, this is how bad it's going to be." And so I was like, "Well, I guess I ought to read it and see." And I found myself reading through it and going, "Okay, that sounds all right. That's pretty good. I'd support that. Yes." Yeah, and then there was some stuff that I was like, no way. And that was stuff on immigration and climate change and things like that. Um, but it wasn't really, it was, you know, it was saying expanding things like, you know, in my world, energy like natural gas and oil and, and coal. And I don't think that's necessarily a great thing to be scaling coal, but I would on natural gas. It's like, all right, well, you know, I would do those things too because they're available and they're, 
cleaner. So scale it, get it done so that we can continue the economy to get the things that really need to be done. So, you know, I was like uh, seeing all these things and going, okay, that, some of the other things that I saw early on in the, this list, it was like he had written it like, a, this is my contract to the American people is the way it was written. like, oh, that's rather interesting. So I'm like, man, how did I not read this earlier? I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying so, – so some of the other things that were in this uh, document was stuff like I'm going to pass a law immediately that says that no member of Congress or the Senate can ever leave that position and then go lobby for anybody, international or uh, other national organization. It's like, well, yeah. And, you know, so some of these things in there was like – you mean they can do that? I didn't even know that. Well, that seems obvious to me. So <laughs> there was some stuff in there that was educational for me. So point point being point being though that I was like, okay, this is not the best news ever. This is not great. But clearly I've been naive to stuff that I could have been learning more about. And I really think that it goes both ways. And that was the that was the problem for me was that I just felt like um, on both sides of the equation here in the U.S., it, that divide has gotten stronger and stronger. And um, it feels like if I had to bring definition to it, a values problem that people are actually arguing about the same effing value, which is love. And the way they define it is slightly different, you know. And, you, and so, on the one hand, you've got Christian, like um, the, the right that, that's protecting the right to life and saying, like, you know, absolute anti-abortion, and then supporting gun rights, which is fucking stupid. <laughs> like, how dumb is that? That's the stupidest thing ever. But then, on the flip side, on the left, you got the opposite, and it's like, well. So you, you're, if you really talk about this together, you would find that there's a lot of common ground. There's a value in there, and it's not actually about the right to life. It is life and love in general and how you define that. But um, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I've been paying attention to how, how people's views in the U.S. over time as I've learned that, and I felt like I've gotten a little bit less connected to how politics in Australia really works and what the differences are between labor and liberal. So I'll often see points in America and go, okay, gun rights, well, that's kind of behind us in Australia. But which party was that on again? Who would have fought for that? And it's really wishy-washy. And I don't know the full answer to all these little things that you can, you know, look at as issues. But the one thing I know is that if you're a Republican and you move from America to Australia, you wouldn't know which party to support. Because all of the list of things that are on your agenda, they're not clearly defined in another country. Which tells me that it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that's in your mind, Right, like it's an identity you think you represent, but you actually really don't. Well, one of the challenges is they give you just two choices, and that—that's fundamentally the problem. You're either this or this, and like I even find when I teach, um, if I teach personality types on, on to to an audience, now I won't teach personality types as a as a um, 
as a set presentation, but I might uh, say, listen, generally when people are looking at time, they're going to fit in one of these two categories. Now, there's many more categories, but it'll generally go like this. And then I'll show them a couple of different frameworks. And I keep saying to them, I'm showing you these not to put you in a box, but to show you that there's all these choices. But consistently, the question is always, well, I haven't worked out which one I am. So, and they, and I'm saying, no, these may be a preference, but these, these are just two generalizations. But as soon as I put two on the board, people want to choose which one they fit into. So if I put a third one in, they still want to choose. And, you know, in the States or in any, in any environment, um, we put two out and wore them against each other and we have the, the illusion of choice. It's like saying to a child, you want the apple or the orange. Now, the kid wants the ice cream, but you didn't put it in front of him. And, and there's a film that I haven't watched yet. Dan and Fee were talking about it quite a lot and I'd heard about it called Requiem for a Dream, I think it is, um, which talks about how you can control a huge population by just giving them the illusion of choice. And you just choose, you just basically have two sides and basically they're the same version of the, 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 the two, you know, some, the, same, the same thing, just slightly cut into different shapes and you don't really ever get any significant change. And I think that, um, you know, if I look at what's happening in Australia, we've had two elections that have just been split by uh, the independents. So if an American's listening, got... It's very similar, but there's, I think it's like 72 votes to get you the, um, get you control of the house. And then, but what's been happening is they've been getting like 71 each or 70 each. And then the, the, the remaining, uh, independents and those independents end up making a deal with one of the parties. They will, we'll support you and we'll get your bills through, through if you are on the condition that you do this for my region or that you change something. And so we've had two of those now, I think. And, and, uh, Prior to that, we had these huge swings, just huge swings. That they, oh, you know, no one will ever make this back. And then it you know, goes Labor's way, and then it goes Liberal's way, and then it swung back again. And since then, it's just been this neutral point. And it's because none of them really stand for anything. And they're just, everyone's been becoming very politically correct. And the country is desperate for legitimate leadership. And and when I say legitimate leader, it's like somebody that actually stands for something, makes it clear, and isn't playing the politics of I'm going to say this so that um, I sound good and make you sound bad. Like it's just a very verbose kind of industry where, where there's just words. Um, there was actually some footage on Facebook recently. of um, It was actually on the ABC, but I saw it on Facebook where this politician came out and said, oh, I just want to refer to the polls overnight, which have said A, B, and C, and therefore, you know, he's a crap leader sort of thing. And the, the cameraman just laughed and said but you know didn't the polls say that you weren't going to get in she said yes they did and he said but you got in he's like yes she says well i don't really give a lot of credit to the polls you can get a poll to go one way or the other way and the camera's laughing and she's realizing that she's come out to say well the polls are this but i don't really give value to the polls and the polls said and like it was just all bullshit and that's what people are tired of and i think when um with the trump thing love him or hate him, what he's done is he said, let's stop having an artificial conversation. Let's be, let's just shoot from the hip, call it as it is, argue about the things that we're actually really concerned about. And of course, some people aren't, don't have the maturity or the capacity for that, that conversation. And it, it's got to be done gingerly, but people are just desperate for a real, real leadership. And, and in Australia, I, I hope this has given them a fright. I was watching on um, 
So, yeah, that obviously the election here, I think we watched his speech maybe at seven or eight o'clock at night. So we were able to, then there was a news following and I was watching a show on Sky News, I think it's called Paul Murray. I hadn't watched it before and I rarely go to all news channel. I can't remember the time I've ever done that in my life. But I went across to Sky News and I've been watching it. I was watching it for hours. And um, they had a fantastic debate. They had Mark Latham on who had run um, against, I think he ran against Howard. And he's a cranky old guy, but he still calls it as it is. And there's a few journalists who are um, typically independent, but I think for the Australian or something maybe. And the conversation was absolutely fascinating. And what they were discussing was primarily was that uh, that this is a massive wake up call for all the academics and all the politicians because they had uh, they've got thirty eight people in some department which I'm not familiar with. I'm not across it, but thirty eight people people in one department, all academics, all on full time salary, and their job is to analyze America, understand what's going on, and make sure we're adapting and keeping up and all this and not one of them picked that that uh, trump would win and they all said 95 percent chance that hillary's going to get in and latham just went after him and just said you guys have got to say that your polls don't work you've you, you've got no other choice but to say we don't know anything and we're paying you a fortune and you don't know anything and then the second conversation was separate to the polls and the academics, right? Which they were like just going, you, you know, you just all got to admit you're full of crap now. So the next conversation was about, well, what's with all these um, journalists uh, confusing opinion pieces with fact pieces? And if you've got an agenda, then you should say you've got an agenda. And otherwise, you should be a legitimate journalist and just write the facts that you've got. And they said that the whole world had gotten crazy like that. So everything that you're reading in the paper is actually just opinion and it's not actually grounded on fact. And we, you know, it compounds on top of absolute nonsense in the academics. Then the other point, I wish I knew this guy's name. I actually recorded this show as well, so I could go back. But um, he made a fantastic point saying what's basically happening is that people do business and try to impress people like them. So if you think about I might work at Fox News, someone's looking for a job and one of my mates at Fox News goes, I've got a guy, I went to Harvard with him or he was at Yale with me. We went to college together and they agree and they come in and they come in that environment. So they've already got a, a rapport because they're in a certain circle and think a certain way. And then, of course, if I'm going to write an article, I've got to write it to please my boss. So I write to please my boss. And then some guy that's not in that community well, applies for the job and comes from, say, south of america or something somewhere a little bit more country and he can't get that job so that voice is never heard and what you end up with are collections of academics politicians journalists who all are agreeing with each other but not actually have no capacity to be self-critical and self-aware and self-observant enough to assess whether or they actually know what's going on because they all verify each other Hmm. And and it's not that the whole picture does, it's just they're all in little teams. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're all – it's not like I necessarily think that everybody at Fox News is thinking and saying the same thing as <clears throat> the people at NBC. It's It's – they're just – but – it's the same problem. Getting in at NBC is much more different, difficult, no doubt, for somebody that's, I don't know, gone to some kind of 
some Christian university or whatever and studied uh, ethics and something to do with whatever. Like, they're, they're just not a good fit for NBC. They're a better fit for Fox. And they just – that's where they gravitate to. That's where they want to – they dream. They're totally right. And it, what's been interesting, which I think why I've loved – podcast so much is that I feel like I get to hear people that aren't in that, that are doing really interesting and good work. Um, yeah, if you're receptive to it. But one of the things that happens in these communities is that they're elitist. They they think that they know that they're so educated that they have thought it through more than you and you don't understand the situation. And I'm smarter and let me just explain it to you. Which in the process, though, that they may understand how all the elements work, but that does not mean that the point of view of the small voice or the the person who's less across it, it doesn't mean that that view isn't actually still valid and fit in there, and it may have a level of potency that the that the that the, that the you know the educated person who thinks they're educated um, may be giving it credit for, and I think that's like I like I. I just feel like I I wish I could language it better than I am, but I feel like I've seen this playing out for a long time. I've yeah, me too. I, I've had yeah. I've struggled languaging it. It's really it. Um, once I, again, I heard reference to a great term just today in this book that was referencing another guy that I listened to that's becoming quite popular in circles in podcasting and other such uh, circles called Ryan Holiday. And uh, he wrote a piece or something about this issue called outrage porn. And what he was talking about was the media taking an issue and hyping it up and making it outrageous and sending it out to a community of people and then making them get outrageous and then repackaging all of that outrage and sending it to another community essentially and this would just continue this whole cycle. And that's how it's felt is just this outrageous. And it's not just the media. I mean, it's the media, but it's the people like it's my circle of friends doing this. Yeah. I've seen, I've been so many conversations where somebody will quote something or say, well, he said that, or she said this and I, and I'm far more across it. Not all the time, but you know, in, in the conversations I'm referring to and, and I'll say, no, 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 that, that's not actually what happened. And this was the context and this is what happened. And you've just, they've just shown you a snippet of that. And you can see friends sort of get a bit uncomfortable. I'm not trying to challenge them on it, but, you know, they're because they're so passionate and outraged when you say, well, actually, it's not like that. It was actually more like this. Now there's a little bit of embarrassment because they look like they didn't know. So then the answer is, oh, well, anyway, my point is this, and the outrage continues without that point backing them up. And and I, I guess it just shocks me that people don't listen, but also they think they, they, they still, they don't listen to the news or, or any, with, with any level of critical thinking, whether or not, well, does that sound plausible there's just this absolute acceptance and i i think mark latham was said said it really well which i hadn't give he's always been a little bit uh, he's a bit he's a bit angry it feels like he's actually had um 
you know, it's hard to listen to what he's saying sometimes because of the, the, the way he's delivering it. But as I was listening, he was making some very good points. And he said, the public have to understand the media are not a public service facility. They are not here to say, let us help you and educate you on something. They are fundamentally interested in, um, they are fundamentally a commercial enterprise. Interested in eyeballs. <laughs> interested in eyeballs. And, 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 and as Neil Mitchell said today on the radio, he said the media is about provoking emotion. And I am still shocked how much of the population will watch news thinking that it is actually news, and it, which is difficult because where do you get your information from? But I know that, um, like, I just don't watch the news. I don't like it on. It's not news. It's absolute trash and shit. If you actually watch how much time is allocated to news, there's opening couple of stories, which is be the you know the most traumatic thing going on. Then there's quite a lot of commercials, time them, huge number, and then they usually advertise one of their own shows coming up. The the sports section is at the last you know is 15 minutes pretty much, and they do a huge chunk on weather, and there's really not any content there. And then then you go to look like I even had somebody talk to me years ago say. Um, you know, yeah, I agree. Like, I don't really watch the new stuff. Like, we only really just pay, we just watch a current affair. As if that was a fucking intelligent, like, <laughs> are they not intelligent? They put my fucking book on that show, for Christ's sake. So it can't be a good, <laughs> it can't be a good show. You're like, I'm like, mate. Like, even when I was on the, that, I, I told my friend Troy, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be in a current affair. He goes, oh, my God, what, what category? Are you the dodgy mechanic? Are you the, uh, he had a whole list of them. Are you the dodgy mechanic? Are you the, uh, the, oh my God, the barbecue, what germs on your barbecue can kill you? <laughs> what things in your house might be making you sick and you don't know about? And he went through all these things. And, and even when I was on A Current Affair, I said to the woman who interviewed me, I said, how do you make your choices on what you put on the show? And she said, oh, it's easy, fear, fat, or finance. If it's one of those three categories. Like I had that conversation firsthand. She said, e- e- the public's scared of it. It's got to do with fat or it's got to do with finance. Like, that's how she decides. It's not like, oh, what's a really interesting thing that's going to stretch? That's like um, is it Sean McAuliffe who had a show on the ABC a long time ago. And I think he might have had a commercial opportunity as well. But, you know, I used to watch only snippets of him. Dan used to love it. But he's just too smart for the population because he was actually aware, educated. He knew what was going on. And he would prefer to content that was fascinating. But the truth is, yeah, the truth is that people just want shit. And... And that's really concerning, but it can be rescued if the leadership of a country actually cares about those people, like legitimately, because, because there's opportunity there because those people deserve to not be thought of as foolish. They deserve to be thought of as uh, needing, needing our, our, our capacity to contribute to their lives and grow them and not just write it off as if they don't know anything. I think that's what typically happens. Like, oh my God, these people are so stupid. Let me go and do it myself. But in the process, you go and do it yourself and you're a minority. Like you you have to, and I think Trump's, he's gathered the masses. And now the question is, will he lead them well? And I think it's quite fascinating if it plays out. I'm sure there's going to be some, I'm really concerned about what, what could happen, but in principle, the idea of putting um, a bit more business now into into a political or governing body 
it makes sense because the debt just is, you know, like, you know, there's some bloody dumb decisions made. They're just fat cats that are really not contributing and are just puffing their own chest up. I don't know what they're going to do if they'll get booted out, but, um, but it's definitely, um, I don't know. There's opportunity in it. The, on principle, the ideas of the on principle, the biz, idea, the idea of not Trump so much, but the idea of putting business and accountability tools into political or governing environments. I, I love that idea. Um, that doesn't mean it has to be callous without heart and yeah, that's right. Social that's right. awareness. I remember at one point, Michael Bloomberg <clears throat> was talking about potentially making a run for president really late in the game. This is still at the, in the primaries. And I don't know a whole lot about him, quite honestly. I know he's the mayor of New York City at one point. Um, I know he's a billionaire. He's kind of like another Trump, but he's not a Trump. <laughs> um, and he just said, look, I'll only run if there's not going to be, if there's somebody that he was worried that if it looked like Hillary wasn't polling out well enough against Sanders, he was going to run because he felt like they needed a strong candidate that could beat Trump. Um, anyway, uh, I found myself going, oh, that would be interesting, having a businessman on the Democratic side. Because I th- think in hindsight now, it was like everybody is – Talking about that was that was the change people wanted to see, not more of the same. And I really think he would have kicked some ass. I think Sanders might have done all right for the same reason. And I don't want to dig into politics for that reason, other than um, I, I agree with you. Like that, it's interesting to think about that change. You know, that there's a little bit of a challenge when you talk about the kind of. Uh, not just having a president, but also like having the Senate and the House and everything all on one side, there can be some scary shit that can happen pretty quickly. So those checks and balances are, are, are I think that's what people are most fearful of. Because I, I just like, well, what the hell have I got the fear of Donald Trump? Like, you know, this is the presidency. You can only do so much. But when you have the weight of every other part of your team on that side and everybody's too afraid to go against you because they're afraid their voters are voting for you, then you've got a real scary freaking proposition on your hands. And so that's where the fear is for me, quite frankly. But um, but mm, just it's uh, it's been a, a really interesting period to kind of reflect on and, and more internally get to know what am I – it's been a very similar process for me and say religion where I often find myself like, what is it that gets my blood boiling about this issue? Cause there's certain things, there's certain conversations, certain issues that just really rub me the wrong way. And I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know how to discuss it unless I'm with the right kind of people that are open-minded. But when I'm with people that would be the equivalent in a political sense of, you know, like gun rights, like get the hell out of my way, like don't take my gun, like I don't know how to have a conversation with somebody like that. It's just like, what's the point? But then it's like, well, there has to be a point, and that's what frustrates me the most in, in, in the religious sense and in the political sense, and that's what I find to be this challenging place to be in right it's because you you feel like a silent majority 
a majority that cannot speak up because you just don't know what the hell you're going to say. You're going to offend one side or the other. Um, and I think that's the challenge that's been happening for um, the populations probably voted for Trump, that they've felt right. like they haven't been heard. Um, that, that's what I started they, wondering, right? Because farmers turned out in record numbers. Yeah. And nobody talked about them. And it's like mm. that that's your silent majority of these people that are just they're hardworking people and they're just – they're not opinionated one side or the other. I mean, I'm sure a lot of farmers are, but just meaning like there's just, you just. Um, I think I um, you might know um, our friend um, Jessica Wedders that we worked at Interlochen with. She posted a, an article before on Facebook just that she'd been reading. And I, I read it, got a lot of respect for Jess. And so I read it and um, it was basically, I can't remember the woman's name, but this woman had been immersing herself, herself in some of the more rural communities for a long time and just listening to them and working what their concerns were even before this situation came up. And there was consistent concerns that or issues. She said one is that they don't like that because they're in the country, everybody thinks that they're not smart and that all these big decisions are made in the city. And and they're all talking and you know arguing with each other, but they're not actually acknowledging that the country run significant businesses, significant lives and actually know how things work and they're not – so they don't like that they're not being heard. And it, <clears throat> a lot of it came down to people just not feeling like anybody was ever having a conversation with me to acknowledge that, you know, if they're farmers, say, we're feeding the country, for example. And and I've definitely been guilty of that. Like I've done a lot of work out in rural Australia and I, I've definitely noticed I've gone out there with a city attitude and as time's gone on, I'm like, oh, my God, what am I – thinking I'm bringing wisdom out to the country. Like, these people can teach me a lot. Like, I didn't even know that that subtlety was in me. And I'm like, holy. Now, that was like- Isn't it, isn't it funny? Ago. Because you're talking- <clears throat> I know what you mean. Like, it's totally like you could get so focused on how to make a team perform at its peak and its best and get rid of, like, you know, uh, how to make your team give a shit. That's what you are talking about earlier. Not only is that a first world problem, but it's even more than that. It, it's an elite problem. Right? It's like it's not a problem that a farmer is dealing with. They just go, hey, the effing field. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, if you can't do it, I'll find somebody that can. And it's not that they don't have that problem. They don't have time for that problem. So they move on. And it's so easy to get trapped into that elite thinking of this is a, a major issue we need to solve. And it is. But in the same token, there's a huge population of people where that just isn't problem it's not what they wake up in the morning and think about yeah and mm. i think um to just to continue on that thing because i i want to get this idea across but it was sorry yeah you know no but you're but you're right, like, right you're exactly right it's like there's a there's the the country have fundamentally a different um view different experience different wisdom that is as legitimate and just not heard and that was the big thing we're not heard the second thing is where we we pay a lot of tax and we see it being spent on the cities not on the countries in the country areas and and as part of that we also see people in the cities becoming billionaires when of the back of our taxes when that's not happening in the country and there was Ongoing things, but the, those are the main two. It's the, the, where the money was going and nobody's listening. And and then I saw on 
uh, a politician interviewed here who was a, uh, for the Nationals or something, I think, he, and he was doing a lot of work out in, and he said, out in the country, and he said, I go out to the country and he said, I don't have any bodyguards around me. I just walk up down the street and I say hello to people and I have a chat. And he said, at first, they don't tell you much. And he says, but if you listen, if you just wait, they want to tell you, but they've just never been listened to. But, and so they give up telling you. But then if you wait, they actually tell you. And he said, what they've got to say is fascinating. And I think that what's happened in, you know, I observe, you know, I'm not the expert, but my, my humble observation is that's, that's fundamentally this huge rift between the city that thinks it's educated but is actually ignorant and the country that is, is exhausted um, I know. from not being, not being heard. Hmm. And here's the irony, right? Let's elect somebody that has an interior decoration style. It's much the same as Saddam Hussein. <laughs> and, and, and it's basically um, a, a poor man's idea of a rich man. You know, it's like, it's, that's what's so interesting about it. And I think that's why people are just so disappointed is that the people that believed in Trump and voted for Trump and supported Trump, I I think that the people that now realize what they wanted are probably going, yeah, but he's not the right guy to do that. And maybe he is, maybe he will pull through and and be something great i'm certainly willing to embrace that but um i'm not disappointed like when i say that um i'm just listening to to the mood of our conversation and thinking geez you know like i I see a lot of people on social media talking about this at the end of the world but that's because our social circle similar thinkers There'll be other people when they're looking on social media. Everyone's celebrating. Go Trump. Go Trump. You know, I've got a few you, friends that are going saying go Trump. Yeah, I. I yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so I'm seeing these people just putting these very sad posts up. You know, what am I going to tell my kids? How can we live like this? What are we going to do? And it's very, it's very sad. And and I'm thinking about well, when I when we're having this conversation, I'm thinking, what's our mood? And my mood is. is I'm not disappointed because it would suggest there's like a, and I'm not saying you're putting me in that category at all. I was just thinking this out loud. Like, is it, I'm not in, I don't want to be in the category that boxes what's going to happen next, that pre-decides that this is, I know how you think, I know how you act, I know what you're going to do, Trump. I'm actually quite excited about the revolution. Like I'm quite excited about, I think that politics has become, too big for its own boots. And this happens right through history. So anytime I go to a country for anything longer than two weeks, I will read up and study the country. I want to understand the culture and its background and what made it. And consistently, you just read the same stories with different names. And that is that somebody was in charge. They, somebody who earned being in charge was often a very good leader. And then they had kids who were poor leaders and then they had kids who were even worse leaders because they'd never really earned it. And then the, eventually they pissed everybody off, you know, the old let them eat cake. And then there's an uprising and this person gets booted out and somebody else comes in and there's a conflict for a while until eventually it all settles down. And there's this new leader who is really great. And it goes around a circle again. And so I'm excited about, like, I think that I'm excited about the potential of a, of a, it's plausible that we could have a revolution that isn't war-driven, that isn't 
full hostile. There's always there's always you know outliers that are stupid, but it's plausible that there could be transformation. So I'm not. I'm probably. See, you know, Americans would find this much harder to hear. I think that in Australia we're much more swinging voters. We're we're listening and. So we don't side with one side or the other. So it's very difficult, I find, to talk politics with an American because they tend to say, well, you must be one or the other, and we're not. So I'm sitting here thinking, well, it's what if? What if it worked? What if the hate backed off? Like there'll be some people who are just listening that's just absolutely fucking enraged right now. But <laughs> like what if, what, if the, what if the hate that we think or people have perceived in Trump and the racism and the – the sexist, what if the movement, those ideas, what if, what if they weren't as extreme as you thought or, or perhaps were, were just him being a dumb idiot but his actual decision-making was good? Now, I'm not saying it is. I'm not pro-Trump on this. There's some things I look back in his history, his business history, and I'm like, this is just bullshit. But I can't afford to – I'll be going to be miserable if I get invested in that. So I have to have some – that's right, and it's no Hope. different with Clinton. You could do the same damn thing exactly with anyone, right. with anyone. Exactly. So, no, I agree. And at, at some point, you have to just go. All right, this was, this is it. This is in this particular case, yeah, a revolution. So why not get excited about it and look for what to be a revolution about and help grow? And, and that's what I. Fan, I was like, well, that's about the only liberating thought I can have about what this is. Because I, I, I was like, but this is interesting. I saw the news. I watched it all happen. I felt a sinking feeling watching it happen and stomach churning, thinking, what the F and hell? But then I was like, oh, but there's something about this that's interesting. <laughs> so why don't I grab a hold of that and see, like, go with that? Like, what is it? It's about interesting. What could be about to happen that could be good? And how could I look for that? Because, like, obviously, a lot of the people and family that I respect and, 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 and friends and family see something here. So why don't I try to, like, see what they see and not just conclude like everyone else is that they're a bunch of racists and bigots and pricks because I know they're not. So... I mean, as well, warm into something, and there's a risk that they've picked a bigot and a prick to represent the revolution, but at least there's nothing wrong with believing the idea that there's something to be had here and get behind mm. it, like you say. There's been some strong um, comparison between Trump and Hitler. Yeah. And, and um, years ago, I watched a movie called The Wave. I haven't been able to find it since. If there's a listener out there that can get their hands on it, I would love it. In the movie The Wave, it's about a school teacher in America that had students who didn't understand how the Nazis could possibly have um, thought the way they did. How, how did they poss- How did Hitler possibly get power? How did it work out? And what he does is he says, "Well, let's just let's just see how it might work." And he says, "Let's have a movement called the Wave." And uh, so it's a little story. It's a it's a true story, and it's a, obviously it's a movie about what happened. And in it, he says, right, you two boys in the class, you're going to be, you're going to be in charge of this. And so from now on, you're going to wear this little badge and that's going to say, you're in charge of, say, I don't know, clean classroom. I can't remember the details. And you, you, you know, three girls are going to be in charge of this. And when everyone walks in the class, you're going to make sure they're like this. So everybody walks in and we belong to the wave. And this classroom was the wave. And he's just doing a small exa- thing, but, but then it got bigger. 
Then other people were like, oh, what group's this for? And oh, it's Mr. So-and-so's class. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger until the whole school was running like this. And then he ended up putting, getting every, telling, look, the leader of the wave's going to turn up on this day. And he had everybody in this huge auditorium. And they're all wearing their version of the uniform and all doing their stuff. And he put Hitler up the front, uh, just footage of Hitler. And, and of course, there was this trauma amongst his kids. And I don't believe the guy ever worked again because that was just such outrageous. But he was, oh, I don't know, I don't know if he was good or bad. I don't know. But he was, he was making the point of this is how it happens. You, you make people who didn't feel important, important. And, and then you tell them, this is the rule. And if you're doing this, you're important. If you're not doing it, you're out of the group. And they belong to something. And so I watched, um, and I've also just, when you look at how Hitler did get to power, he was a minority and no one ever thought he'd make it. But he was a minority and he, and he chipped away, but he was basically using a model crassly like what I've just outlined, right? And there's, and so there's been a lot of similarities to, to the Hitler thing. And I can see it when when I see what Trump's doing and how, um, and how Hitler went about it. I'm like, I see the similarities, but I also think we don't fucking know that, you know, like that's just not, that's just not fair and it's not healthy. Um, and it creates hysteria and it really concerns me. And I, I probably had a lesson when we were interlocking week, I'm not sure if you were there this year, but one of the trainings we had before this, the summer started was we had a, um, a guy coming, Dan, somebody, I can't remember his name, but he played a movie called tough guys. Um, or is it maybe it was a half hour show or something, but tough guys, but the word guys was like disguise. So it was the, the guys that men get portrayed in. And he, and in this, this footage, it shows how typically Hispanic men are always the bad guys in these films. And it was, this was like what we would have been early nineties. So it may have changed a little bit, but fundamentally, and it said how Hispanic guys are always the bad guys. So as a result, when you walk down the street, you don't realize it. If you haven't had Hispanic friends, you haven't been in that community, you see Hispanic man and you have a distrust and you don't even know that's happening. And you have no interact with extra, extra interaction with, say, the Somali community, but you've watched some films and the Somalians are, look bad. And then there's some guy walks down the street and they're not happy, they're just sad or they're flat or they're scared themselves and then you invent. And I've, since then I've been really aware of how we create genres for people to fit into, but we don't know. You know, we just don't know if that's true or not. And, um, you know, and I think social media is littered with these examples where somebody behaves outside of the, of the caricature they're put in. So, you know, you see some kid, I'm just inventing it, but they're crying on the street, who's going to help them? And you see some homeless guy come up, some black homeless guy come up and help the kid. And you're like, oh, who would have thought? And you're like, well, he's a fucking human. So it's pretty plausible. You know, like, but they're like, they're, they're the ones who've got this idea that a black homeless guy wouldn't help a young kid. Like, it's it's ridiculous, you know, um, or there's somebody who's dropped the wallet and who who picks it up and who keeps it sort of thing. And and really what we're doing is we're looking at people who step outside our stereotypes, but, but we set the damn things. And I, I'm, I'm thinking that for, you know, with, I think if we go back to like you're saying, you know, people fit into one or the other and you've got to choose and people don't even know, are they Democrat or are they Republican or what are they? Um, I, I think that what 
having watched that movie a long, long time ago and seen The Wave as well, I've been very alert to think, all right, that's the, that's the image, the category you want to put that person in. But is that actually how they are? Um, and, I th- and I think that's true too. With If you saw, heard, um, if you heard um, what's it, Jamie Foxx interviewed with Tim Ferriss, he talks about Justin Bieber and he's like, he's like, what's your image of Justin Bieber? And Tim doesn't answer the question while he just sort of jokes around. But, but Jamie's Fox point, Jamie's Fo- Jamie Foxx's point was that the media turns celebrities into characters that they can play off each other. So they invent Justin Bieber as being this stupid you know, doesn't know anything, like inconsistent, wild child that's just sort of like lost his way. And he's like, but when you know the guy, he's, he's fantastic, but they just invent a caricature and they tell stories that have got nothing to do with um, the actual people. But then we believe that and then we continue to invent the story and then we think we're right and then we get outraged and then we get upset, and then when somebody gets elected, we're disappointed, and we've got to write a sad letter saying, oh, my God, what am I going to tell my kids? And you're like, fucking take a chill pill. Like, <laughs> you know, you've just projected the next 25 years have been fucked up. And That's right, and, and connecting so much of your happiness to that. And that's, I don't know. You know, the whole idea of voting is such a strong, it, it's, it's like you're voting for your happiness. And I think that's such an emotional thing for people to just disassociate dis- them themselves with at some level. Because when you vote locally, you've got all these little local issues. In Maine, they were voting on marijuana. Are they going to make it legalized or not? It's already medical marijuana is available in Maine. There's all these other issues on the ballot. You have background checks, stronger background checks for guns and it's like, but they weren't, I mean, you could kind of say, well, I know one's a Republican-ish or a Democratic one, but it's like the legalization of marijuana is like, well, I don't really know what side that would fall on. It might be a Republican idea, it might be, but it's not a side. It's just a question. So I don't really care if a part, I mean, I care what the result is, but it's not an outcome of my happiness because it's a question. And I can say, what do I prefer out of this or this or that? But when you're talking about the outcome of like this big election that there's a year and a half worth of bullshit circled around and um, that that's what I enjoyed about this book I was reading. It was this quote and I'm going to read it to you. And I, it's this thing is so freaking simple, but yeah, it was just. Is this got a, is this got a language warning coming? No, no, it okay. doesn't. This one. Um. So here it is, though. The the desire for a more positive experience is in itself a negative experience. Accepting a negative experience is in itself a positive experience. And I was like, of course, right? Like, (laughs) we're always hoping for an easy time of it and and that's what i think is such a struggle for people right now with the outcome of an election is they felt like they voted for their happiness and it didn't pass Mm. and not only that but they just felt like somebody gave them the finger and said we're going to do the exact opposite of your happiness Mm. so now Mm. you can just watch your whole life fall to pieces and figure how you're going to talk to your children about it and that becomes like they just don't know how to deal with it God, that's so true. And the way I observe that too, that 
that quote is that uh, people are either invested in the future, which will cause them misery, or they are just being present. So, like, I could be miserable about, like, what exactly what we're talking about and not notice that I'm sitting with my family eating a meal in a house that I've enjoyed and a couch that we've just bought. Like, you know, like, um, it, it's so easy to project into the future or into the past and not just be present. And I'm, and I'm guilty of it too, but I'm also aware that I do remind people a lot when they're getting worked up about stuff that I'm saying, hey, 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 look at that. You've got the car you love. Remember buying that car and you wanted that car and now you've got it. And remember wanting that jacket? Well, you got that jacket. And remember that job that you wanted? You got it. And remember how you wanted to go on that holiday? You went on it. Like it's, and you know, you're with all your friends tonight. Like any of them could get killed tomorrow on the way home and all, tonight. And, and we don't want that, but just be with these people. And, um, and you're right. I love that what you're saying there, but people feel like that, that someone's vote, they've basically voted against their happiness, you know, they, and, but that's the game. That's why I'm keen to watch this Requiem for a Dream. I actually think it's already how I see the world and how I think, but it sounds like it's quite eloquently expressed. Is this a documentary or is it an actual movie that you're just sort of observing? It's on Netflix and I it's it's not it's not a I don't I'm not sure if you put it in the movie or the doco category, but it does actually follow the life of a particular um I'm not sure if he's a, he's like a social commentator or he's, he's like a, a writer or something like we could, could Google him right now and find out. Um, um, I'll just do it right this second, but it, so oh, I've forgotten the name and it was interesting because here we go. It comes up as soon as I write rec, rec, it comes straight away. I'll tell you what it is. Um, and says here, Darren Aaron Fosky. Darren Amfosky follows up his academic debut with this gritty, emotionally charged film set amidst the abandoned beaches and faded glory of Conal Island. What the hell is that? That's not it. <laughs> <laughs> no happiness in that. <laughs> I wonder what it's, I'm sure it's like that though. It's, I have to go back because it is titled essentially... Uh, wow. I'll have to, oh, that's great. I've just completely misled listeners. <laughs> listeners, you will now have to check everything else that I've said. Is it, okay. oh, interesting. Now I've got a training for a movie. Imaginatively evoking the inner landscape of human beings belonging. Oh, you found it. You found it. What is connect. it? It was straight up there. To love and feel love. The film is a parable of happiness, gloriously found and tragically lost. Requiem for a Dream tells parallel stories that are linked by the relationship between the lonely widowed... That's not the one. ...and her sweet, aimless son, Harry. That's not the movie. How embarrassing. We're going to have to find this out in front of everybody right now. <laughs> oh, hang on. Wait, here you go. It might be Requiem for the American Dream. It might be that. Yes, it is nom... Chomsky, phew, dodged a bullet. So it's Requiem for the American Dream. Uh. And it's the using interviews filmed over four years, Nom Chomsky discusses the deliberate concentration of wealth and power found in the hands of a select few. <laughs> oh, so it's not the one about the sweet son. And 
I couldn't even remember anymore because my, my brain was like molding together with the teacher whole like Hitler thing. I thought that was what I was looking for. So, uh, um, so there we go. So I just found an article in the Huffington Post. Noam Chomsky film Requiem for the American Dream is a clear-eyed, easily accessible outline of how and why American idealism has been sabotaged. Although he doesn't detail the dream, Chomsky sketches its promise of mobility and expectation of progress towards a better life through some sort of democratic polity. Mm. Not sure if polity is a word? Uh, I'm going to check it out. That does sound good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's on Netflix, and so I've been keen to watch it for a while, and it mm. just, um, but it sounds like it languages what's going on. And it sounds like Michael Moore did some really good stuff on this as well. Um, he did a video explaining similar stuff, but I haven't uh, been watch it, but. I'm not, yeah, the whole thing is like, I'm, I'm just curious now. I'm curious and I don't think there's a need to panic, but I, I am, I've been concerned about the future for a long time. I've been concerned about the state of the planet. And I think we did another show where I mentioned that and after the show, I thought, God, that would have brought everybody down. Um, <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. I remember you saying that in a few previous episodes yeah. four or five ago. You're like, wow, that was pretty fucking uplifting, wasn't it? Yeah, I know, right? So I've been concerned about the way things are going. It's felt quite unstable. And I think that, um, you know, with the Brexit thing and this, people are putting them as massive steps backwards. I also think at some point, People just, they don't want to open their, up their borders so much. They like to um, have traditional values and they, they, they like what they've grown up with. And and I think change is natural, but sometimes the pace of it, or sometimes we're changing, you know, it's, it, literally once again, Mick, it's like back to renovating your house. It's like, yeah, you, you, you want to update things and you do like to bring some new things and get rid of some old things, but someone comes in and just guts it and you come in and you go, this doesn't feel like my home anymore. And there's got to be something there that carries on. So you're like, yeah, this, this is my dad's desk or this is my, you know, this is my favorite color. This is my wardrobe, the things that carry on. And I think that what's been happening is that in the quest to move forward of some small, small groups agendas that, that the people on the ground are saying, wait, our hometown is, um, doesn't feel like a hometown anymore. And it's not like some people aren't welcome, which some people aren't aren't welcome. Like some communities work like that. I think it's just the scale of um, of change, and it can sound bigotous and and um, narrow minded and all this sort of stuff. But I liken it to your own house. Like, well, leave your front door open and see who comes in, and and that's not very comfortable. And we need to think about. There's opportunity to think about communities like that too. Is that you just have a sense of well, how do we, how do we control this community? How do we, um, like I think I went off when we run a camp for kids back in the day. If there was another camp running on the same property, you never felt quite safe because their culture and vibe would come in and they could spoil your mood if you had a really beautiful space and they come in and they're idiots, or vice versa. Then you, the mood's spoiled and yeah, it's it's. You, you do you do want to create a culture. You do want to be very deliberate about stuff. And I feel like um, the world is starting to say, wait a second, we've, we're sort of losing the fabric of our, our homes, of our nations. And I think with the, the Trump thing, maybe, and the, and the Brexit, maybe it's possible that these things are um, non-conflict wars in a way. Like there's, 
this is there's tension, but there's not bombs, and they're coming back to just solidifying, you know, the the, the guts of different nations. And I do what was consistent in Clinton and um, Trump's speeches with this talk of we first got to remember we're Americans above being Democrats and Republicans. We're Americans. And, you know, that's, that's a bind, that's a unifying um, and that's, idea. That's, that's what's so interesting is that <clears throat> they both say that and half the population looks at that person and says, you're not American. And the other half says the same thing of the other candidate. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. But you hope there's always going to be, like, for people who've studied any kind of science, there's a, the bell curve is that, you know, there's there's outliers at either side of the bell curve, right? So you're hoping that the outliers, yeah, there's always going to be outliers, always going to be extremists, but you hope the bulk of the population can go, oh, but they can't, can they? You hope the bulk, bulk of the population can say, well, let's be American. And they're trying to do that. Yeah. And I don't I have the same emotional the- connectedness to it, having not... Yeah. Being born yeah. here, I don't have the same patriotic <clears throat> sense in, in terms of like I have patriotism to the United States, obviously living here yeah. and growing fond of the people here and all of that, but it's mm. not the same as so I don't I have <clears throat> I don't have that yeah, that that vision when I'm watching two people say that. I just that's my interpretation is that half the people think they're right and the other half people's go, Well yeah, well you're not American, like you're not what we consider to be a, a true American. But I, I, yeah, I would agree. I'd have to think that would happen anywhere. Um, uh, you know, I think you're a little bit right about yeah, people not being heard. Yeah, I, I think in some ways there's the people like we're talking about farmers and such that haven't been listened to before. On the flip side, just over the weekend before the election, we had friends over here and... Um, just chatting uh, with one of our friends and she's explaining how they're out doing trick-or-treating with a couple uh, who's got a kid that is there from Somalia and their kid is in um, the same class as their little boy. And they're like, oh, we invited him to go trick-or-treating. They had no idea what it was about, no idea how to do it, never done it before. So we invited him along. She's like, I'm chatting him. And then she was like, I can't believe it. She just blurted straight out to me, like, because they were talking about the election. Have you voted before? Can you? And she was like, no, I'm an illegal immigrant. I'm scared shitless of what's going to happen to me. And I'm trying to make a decision of when I get kicked out of the country, do I take my son back to Somalia with me? Or do I just go on my own and leave him here? Well, my children she had more than one child. I was like, holy shit. And so on the one hand, you've got the people that have that challenge of not being heard. And on the flip side, what I think is a challenge, and this comes back to civility and tolerance and not so much tolerance, but more it, it, I'll get to the point was that there's people in the city that are hearing these stories that folks in the country aren't and, and, in some ways, it, it looks and feels like a difference in intelligence. And sometimes it's just a different experience because you can live in New York City and I think probably be exposed to a different type of middle class and lower class than what you do when you're in freaking northern Maine, where it's 
a different experience. And so it's all about the cost of energy and your rights as a human being and, and citizen and things like that in, in the rural areas and in, in the city. It's all about minimum wage and equality. Um, and so it's like you're fighting for the same idealisms, but the way you define it and your lived experience is different. And one would think that that's always going to continue to come to a head, but you can't split those two things into two separate parties and expect that it's, oh, it's just really interesting. I don't know. I'm not. It is. And look, I definitely think that those, you know, it's a great example about that woman is in such conflict and your, your heart just says, you know, let's look after her. And then you, and then you scale that up and, you know, there's all these warring countries and there's people fleeing and you, your human part of you says, let's, let's help them. And then, then there's a point where we're having that problem in Australia where some of those, those cultural, um, the, some of the issues that cause the wars in these countries are actually ending up in Australia. There's gangs starting because these people feel completely isolated or like they don't know how to fit into the community here. They don't belong totally. to anything, but they can belong to a gang. That's and, gang mentality, right? I mean, this yeah. is how it totally. And in those totally. countries, that's how things were done. And so they don't know any better. So they do it here. And then you, you know, and then you, you're like, guys, like this is not how it's done. You, you came here because it didn't bloody work and where you were living and now you're bringing that shit. And so then you say, well, then you go, oh, let's create a wall. Let's create a boundary. Let's keep them out. And then let's just try to still help them, but help them in their own country. But it's, you know, but then if you go across and then you become the bigger military hand, then, you know, you're just suppressing an issue or you become the bad guy. Like it, it is fundamentally complicated there's no question you're just playing a game that you just think you know the rules to so you just keep playing it right it's it's like and that's what's so interesting about being here in the u.s and observing all of this stuff of people being republicans and democrats and siding and thinking that that's that's how the world is defined so you have to be one or the other and there's there's so many people that are so strongly one or the other that you just like you know i've got guys i work with that i'm just like i've been bluntly i've interrupted them bluntly so i was like dude you have to stop watching so much fox news and they're like what are you talking about and i'm like i don't even like you you gotta hear yourself this is crazy the stuff you're saying you're not you're just like you're living in this little world and you need to get out of that and it's the same on the other side of the spectrum as well um and it's but at the end of the day it's a set of rules and people figuring out how to play by them and where they fit in um it's interesting because um once again in that book i was hearing about a study that psychologists did with people and they'd put them in a room and give them like this dashboard filled with buttons and stuff. I said, okay, you got 30 minutes and there's this light in the room and a bell, like a you know dinging sound. And so they said, the object is like, we can't tell you how to make the bell and the light go off, but there's a way to do it. And so you got to just start experimenting. And the goal is to get as, and every time you make the bell go off and make the sound, you get a point. And the idea is over 30 minutes, you're going to get as many points as you can. So the people would just go about figuring out what they need to do, what combination of pushing buttons. And there's only so many buttons, so it wasn't super complicated, but they'd figure out what patterns and what they need to do. And they'd get a 
they'd get a sound, a point, and go, okay, cool, and they'd just keep repeating it um, over time. And then some people would start to learn, oh, maybe it isn't all the buttons. Maybe there's some other stuff I've got to do about how I position myself, what happens if I'm standing up or sitting down, and what happens if I move around and do this or do that, and um, they'd just keep going and trigger up points. And so what the psychologist found at the end of this experiment was – for one, so some people would start to, um, or everybody would practically leave the experiment thinking that they won, they did a great job. And some people, one lady was jumping up and touching the ceiling continuously. And, uh, you know, another guy was standing up on one foot. And they're doing all these crazy things. And the thing was that none of the buttons did anything, as you can probably guess. It was just a, be- a bell and a sound that just went off randomly and a little bit more consistently as the half hour wore on. And so at the end of really what was happening was just a whole bunch of human beings telling themselves that there was a, a bunch of rules and if they followed them, they win, they get points. And they would just keep doing what they need to do to figure out the game and progress further and get more points. And um, I just, <laughs> it's just a really little interesting experiment to hear about. Cause it's a great metaphor for life, isn't it? Like where we think we can, that we're in control. Yeah, right. Of everything. In- and there's there's nothing happening. It, what what's truly truly happening is that some scientist has just got you in there to like play games <laughs> with you. And like, look, and the truth is, the scientist is pretty much you know like like well, actually, you know what it is. It proves our earlier point because they're a scientist. We believe them. Hmm. <laughs> like, well, they're know. scientists, and they've told us that this is the case. And it's reasonable that they would believe them because like if you're going to be in the room. Someone says do this you know you take it on face value mm-hmm. um but also every time you're in a study you got to know there's some sort of bullshit trick mm-hmm. um you got to know that there's some test be taken on face value so it's a little bit unfair like well it but, is yeah yeah but, I, I but think fundamentally it's, though I, I still think it's interesting where why well, you wonder how they set it up right how do you get into because right, i've been right. through something like that when i went through when i was at university of florida I went and did a study for the, for, uh, it was on pain and, um, with dental and the study I did, I had to show up in one sitting and they gave me, I had to do a, a, a speech, talk about something for like, um, they gave me one minute and they gave me a topic and I just had to speak on that topic. And then they gave me five minutes and I had to read magazines or do whatever I wanted with you know, a whole bunch of reading material for five minutes. And they had these like things reading my brain waves. And then I had to respond to a bunch of surveys at the end of each little exercise talking about how stressed I felt. Um, and then I came back the second time and um, the only difference is they just said, we just want to measure the difference of you doing the same two things, except this time we're going to give you some ice and we need you to put the ice on your head. Um, and then we're just going to go through the same Point. I was like, okay. So what they were, I was like, okay, so you're trying to measure what happens to my stress when I'm in pain or whatever. 
Right. So I go through that. And I don't even realize it's happening to me because I'm going through it. But as I do the speech on, uh, I remember because they said, oh, you know, you need to speak on elephants for one minute. So I start speaking on elephants and the guy interrupts me. Like, no, I mean, like, no, you don't talk about that. Just like talk about this. I was like, oh, okay. And then so then I revert and I started talking about whatever it is he was like. And then, uh, well, not quite that way. And he just would correct me. And so now I was getting fucking stressed <laughs> and the pain was getting higher. Like it was, it was getting worse and I didn't realize any of this. And then at the end of it, they're asking me my questions of like, what was your, how'd you feel? And, and, uh, I was like, Oh my God, the pain, my, my radar was much higher and really it was for dentistry. They were studying what happens when you go to dentist. That's an asshole. Is really what right. they were trying to bedside matter was what they were trying to figure out is distress increased pain and the result for me it was yes, mm. um, my sense of pain was significantly higher. But um, I'm just curious actually how much you got paid for that. Oh gee, I can't remember. I think it was like a couple hundred, few hundred bucks maybe. That's fantastic. <laughs> like, who wants to go, look, we're doing an exercise on pain and dentistry. Has he got any volunteers? <laughs> well, that's what happens no. when you're traveling and studying internationally. I, I didn't want, I couldn't go work anywhere, but I figured out I could go make money by being a, a medical. <laughs> that is fantastic. That is just fantastic. Um, all right, let's let's call it a this day has been because painful people enough have, for our listeners, maybe. But uh, no, I've uh, really enjoyed the chat. Um, me too. You know, this no, chat's gonna it, it's gonna it's date. It's helpful. Um, yeah, somehow. But maybe, but, maybe though, this will be like the Simpsons episode that had Donald Trump as <laughs> the president, and then and then later on, Lisa comes in and is the re- is the next president, and they tell her the world's in a, it's in a huge amount of debt, and she's like, "How bad is it?" And so they play it back and go, we've made a prediction. So maybe we'll listen back to this 10 years from now. And they'll go, God, Mark and Mick just so got that. So fucking wrong. <laughs> they so nailed that. <laughs> It'll be like that. They actually played on that. I think it was on the Paul. Yeah, it was on the Paul Murray show. They played that final scene from uh, Planet of the Apes where Charlton yeah. Heston comes back to the beach and he <laughs> finds the Statue of Liberty like falling over and he's like, no, you destroyed it all. How did you do that? You know, it's, it's a great scene. Um, so maybe that's what's going to happen, you know, and they'll look back at this podcast and they go, those guys had no fucking idea. Um, anyway, I hope, I hope for the best. I hope for the best and I just I hope for the best and just enjoy the moments. Mm-hmm. All right, mate. For those people, and anybody who's angry and doesn't like what we've said, please direct your... Um, Anger to your emails and correspondence <laughs> to nowhere at nowhere.com.au. <laughs> and make your own bloody podcast. Yeah. <laughs> do whatever you want. So, uh, all right, mate. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely, mate. See ya and see everybody until next time. You've been listening to Risking Failure. To join the community and access more free content, news and updates, subscribe at riskingfailure.com.